Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. My guest today is Jim Knight, the Right Honorable Lord Knight of Weymouth, whose career has spanned from education minister and employment minister under Gordon Brown to digital tech exec to climate education advocate. I've known Jim for a few years and know him to be thoughtful, provocative, funny, and unique in his ability to cross disciplines when thinking about ways to make education relevant and more engaging. Our conversation today is about climate education, but also the purpose of education and how sustainability fits in with that. We talk about the bill he has introduced to mandate environment and sustainable citizenship, whose core purpose, the legislation reads, is to instill an ethos and ability to care for oneself, others, and the natural environment for present and future generations. Blissfully elegant and blindingly obvious, Jim frames the need for climate education concisely. If all you hear is how bleak it's going to be and you're not taught any kind of efficacy around it and anything that you can do that aggregates up into being something that makes a difference, then you feel powerless and it's yet another mental health strain on our young people at a time when certainly in the Western world, we know that mental health problems amongst young people are really profound. We dig into eco-anxiety, the best way to affect behavior change and mindset, including what should be legislated and what should be grassroots. We look at models of sustainable citizenship, ways to change the national funding formula to allocate money to students for sustainability projects, and the new British natural history, GCSE. We talk about teacher training and useful frameworks for leaders to think through sustainability, with Jim drawing on examples from Portugal, Italy, Britain, and Sweden. I hope you enjoy the show. Lord Jim Knight, thank you so much for joining us. It's a joy. Real pleasure, Jim. We are going to talk about why we need climate education, what that should look like, how we get there, and what we need to do to mobilize. So I am going to start with the world's stupidest question, which is why do we need climate education in schools? There's a set of reasons. I think, Jenny, first, there's a, a straightforward, you know, what's school for reason, which is, I think it is to prepare people for leading a fulfilling life within the world as they find it. And the world as they will find it is changing pretty rapidly. The post-industrial world where the climate is in crisis is a very different one to when I was in school 50 years ago. And then can they get a job in that world? And I think that there's a whole bunch of skills and mindsets attached to sustainability that are going to be necessary and increasingly valued in the labor market. And then I think more immediately beyond all of that, there's a climate anxiety amongst young people, uh, which is palpable. And it is no surprise that when they are surveyed by organizations like Teach the Future and indeed OECD, I think have got some evidence around this as well. Young people are saying, yeah, we really want to learn more about this because we're worried about it. And if, if all you hear is how bleak it's going to be and you're not taught any kind of efficacy around it and anything that you can do that aggregates up into being something that makes a difference, then you feel powerless. And it's yet another mental health strain on our young people at a time when Certainly in the Western world, we know that mental health problems amongst young people are really profound. So this actually is an opportunity to give them a change that they can do something about. So why wouldn't we want to do that? What about the idea of actually also being able to deal effectively with the impacts of climate change? 
If only 16% of high school students in middle-income countries had climate education, we would see a massive reduction in CO2, 19 gigatons, but also it would help individuals deal with the impact of it. What do you think about that idea? I definitely believe that. I don't necessarily have evidence. When I talk to all the climate change activists and politicians and policymakers, you know, their mindset, if you like, is what's measurable? What can we do around reducing carbon emissions? And they want to measure it in tons of carbon. So they go after big infrastructure projects and they look at education and go, well, actually, the education estate doesn't amount to too much. So we're not that interested. And yet the very same experts are saying, if we are going to meet the targets that are set at, at COP26 in Glasgow or any of the other conferences of the parties in Paris and et cetera before, then the big impact is when the public themselves change their behaviours. So you're then going, okay, if that's what needs to happen, what, what's your theory of behaviour change? And they don't really have one. And my theory of behaviour change, if you like, which is why I don't go to it first when asked about why we should do this, is because this is only my hunch. But my theory of of behavior change is to say, well, what's the demographic that are most engaged with this already? And that is undoubtedly young people. What's the universal service that engages young people? It's education. So why wouldn't we then use education to further engage young people in something that they want to learn more about, teach them not just the knowledge, but also how to apply that knowledge in order to help change their own behavior, and then use them as influences within their homes, within their families, uh, within their communities, to change the wider behavior of the adults that they influence. And to me, it's a no-brainer. I don't know why we don't do that and why the climate change gang aren't all over it. Are you seeing more people coming around to that idea, or are we still kind of just miles away from where we need to be on education as a tool to combat climate change? Well, to be fair, Jenny, the Climate Change Committee here in the UK has identified that we need to do more in education. The Dasgupta Review, which was around biodiversity and the economic importance of biodiversity to the UK, they also identified that we needed to do more in education. The memorandum that was signed by all the parties at Glasgow did say we needed to do a bit more on education. It was a little bit anemic, but you know there was something there. So it's acknowledged. And I guess in the end, I also think there's a little bit of a problem of how siloed education itself is. So education ministers might not be that interested in trying to shoehorn something else into the timetable uh, because they're too busy worrying about what they need to do uh, in order to do well in the PISA tests and in order to do well in English and maths and science and you know, all of their priorities. And so you've not quite got the meeting of minds across the silos of policymakers. So you've introduced a bill in the UK to try to advance this. So one theory of change would be legislation. <laughs> so tell me about the bill. What's in it? So the bill essentially has been inspired by what a guy in Italy, who is the minister, Lorenzo Fioramonti, and what Lorenzo, when he was the minister a few years ago, the parliament came to him and they said, we got rid of citizenship from the curriculum a while ago, and we think we should bring it back because we think young people in Italy should learn more about citizenship. And he reflected on it and he went back to his parliament and he said, okay, I agree that we will reintroduce citizenship for every school-aged child in Italy for one hour a week, but it has to be sustainable citizenship. So we're going to embed 
sustainability into citizenship education. And I just thought that was a really neat idea that citizenship in this country is still there on the national curriculum. So you're kind of taking something where that's already in the timetable and is already kind of prescribed and adapt it towards what teachers and young people want. And so what the bill did is it did essentially a couple of things. One, it tried to put a new aim into the national curriculum for English schools, which was to instill an ethos and an ability to care for oneself, for others, and for the natural environment for present and future generations, which is a form of words that we borrowed from the sustainability movement. And then to change citizenship as a subject in the national curriculum to sustainable citizenship and require the Secretary of State to bring forward programmes of study on, on that basis. And this wasn't totally out of the blue. This was working with the Subjects Association for Sustainable Education. It was working with Teach the Future, a movement of young people who care about these things, and Peers for the Planet, which is an organisation within the Parliament of, of members of the Upper House. But we know from surveying, we, we, you know, we had the backing of the teacher unions, we had the backing of various environmental organisations in the UK. So we had considerable support for it. In the end, we lost time for the bill in Parliament because the government didn't support it, because the government didn't want that level of mandation. They want to encourage all of this to happen, but on a voluntary basis rather than on a mandated basis. What's interesting to me is it's not part of the curriculum. And yet, if I were to tell you the one topic I hear about the most from my children in the context of school, it's actually climate change. And I find that fascinating and and a little bit puzzling. I'm going to just put it out there. I agree with your approach because I think it would be done in a more systemic way. But isn't it interesting? And how do you think about the fact that without it being there, it does seem to be present And what does the bill offer us that the system we have now doesn't? I think you're right. It's out there amongst swathes of young people. I'm concerned that it's not out there amongst all young people. We live in a gloriously diverse country, and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in in respect of the diversity that we have here. But within some of the cultures, in some of the communities, in some parts of our country, um, this is far less of an issue. And, And I kind of get it that if you're really worried about the choice at home between heating and food and possibly data, then this all feels like a bit of a luxury as an issue. There are other things that are really current in in the, the lives of some young people that doesn't allow space for this. And kind of getting it inserted as a priority into everyone's minds, I think, is is really important if the world that we're educating people to go into is going to be one that they can thrive in. I read the bill and it said that uh, you would like pupils to learn about the impact of human behavior on the natural environment, the impact of the natural environment on human well-being. Pupils have the opportunity to develop skills to protect and restore the natural environment and skills to measure the impact of their actions on the natural environment. Those all feel quite tangible and to your point from before, quite measurable right? So there is this interesting idea. The UK has introduced the idea of a GCSE to come in in 2025 on the natural environment. Good idea, bad idea? It's a good idea. I welcome it as far as it goes. I I have questions about it. You know, the, 
the Natural History GCSE, big fanfare when it was launched with the Secretary of State at the Natural History Museum, which is a fantastic venue with a great heritage, blah, blah, blah. And lots of people behind it, and I don't want to rain on their parade. However, it is as yet unclear to me who's going to teach it. I guess probably geography and biology teachers. Our school's going to find space in the timetable for it. We've already got young people taking as many as 12 GCSEs, 13 GCSEs. What's it going to replace in the accountability system that we have in English schools of, of the EBAC? Will it count as one of the sciences? So can you do it instead of physics, chemistry, biology? Is it instead of one of the humanities? So does it count instead of geography or history? Yeah, I don't know the answer to those questions, but those are really important if it's going to be taken up. Ultimately, you're going to need to get head teachers, heads of department who are going, yeah, we're going to make an active decision now to teach this instead of something else. You've just raised such an important point, which is around teacher training. So just even more broadly, if we step back and we dream of the day where your legislation gets passed and we have this GCSE, I see some of the big blockers weirdly as being parents because their thinking is quite outdated and, and teachers who I think probably are committed to the idea, but quite worried about shouldering the responsibility without proper training. What do we need to do to get teachers there. The Eden Project have done some really good work around mapping across the whole curriculum and looking at what you could do across any subject around teaching sustainability and climate change. And they, incidentally, as others have, have done some really good training that they've developed, particularly for emergent leaders, for middle leaders in schools around this topic and, and how you can embed it. And I also advise Aim High Earth, who have got some great training. They broadcast a massive lesson from COP. They've been doing lots of work with educators and generally educators, teachers really want to do this. This is teachers across the curriculum. They do see this as being really important. There is a confidence and a competence question for many of just feeling like they know enough and then have, as you say, how they're related to their particular subject. Uh, and so there's a bunch of work to be done there. But actually, we're not short of people who've been thinking about this who are out there. We just need to sort of help curate it and surface it in a way that's easier for people to access. What are the chances that this bill gets passed at some point? Clearly not in this session, but in another session. Yeah, we will get there in the end. I've always been confident we'll get there in the end. At the same time as I was taking my bill through at NMP, Nadia Whittam was trying to take a, a similar, slightly further reaching bill through in the House of Commons. Both ran out of time. Someone may well try and do something during this session that's just started. I haven't told anyone yet, but I'm tabling today an amendment to the schools bill which will, in the context of a national funding formula, ask the government to copy what, what they did in Portugal, actually, where the ministry there allocated one euro per pupil to schools with a stipulation that it had to be spent by the pupil body. And I've sort of stolen that idea with a notion that we could put into the national funding formula an amount of money per pupil that is allocated for pupils to spend on sustainability projects in their schools. So that instead of going after the curriculum, let's use money. Pupils, you've got money to spend on sustainability projects in your school, and you might be able to negotiate with the governing body and their teacher to give you a bit more. You know, learn what's the best way of spending it and how you're going to make an impact on your own environment. So interesting. That intersects with some of Brookings' research with respect to empowering students to 
define the projects themselves. Let's not make this top down. Let's make it bottom up. Reverting back to your point about mental health and agency, if you want to feel ownership and like you can do something about it, owning it from the start is probably more powerful than having to learn it for GCSE. So it's such a different way of approaching it. Okay. I want to move a little bit now into the how we do this. And you recently at a Learn It panel actually had this great framework that you presented that I think you had borrowed from David Dixon. Is that right? Yes. He had a framework which essentially is four C's. And I've now got to remember what they all are. Curriculum, campus, captaincy, which is the leadership, and community. So uh, what he's basically saying is we need to teach people about it. So you put it into curriculum and you teach them what to do with that knowledge. Obviously, there are things that you can do on campus. Now, that ranges from the obvious stuff around the power consumption, any power generation that you can do, water and wastewater, but carbon capture. What carbon capture can you do on site by growing stuff? A friend of mine, Stephen Heppel, he has a something called a learnometer, which you develop not for this purpose, but which measures all of the environmental factors in a classroom. So the temperature, the light, the air quality, etc. And has that as open data. And what he would say is that the perfect temperature for learning in a classroom happens to be about 18 degrees Celsius. Now that's quite chilly, but that's pretty good for the environment if you keep your classroom heating down, down to 18 degrees. It also, he also happens to say that the level of CO2 in a classroom towards the afternoon, unless it's very well ventilated, becomes pretty toxic for brain development. And so keeping the classroom well ventilated or growing plants in classrooms is really good because it takes that CO2 out of the atmosphere. And you kind of get the sense of, oh, yeah, okay. As part of campus, you can relate that back to curriculum and go, we can have all of this data and we can change our behaviors by seeing the impact. And then beyond campus, what are we doing in community? How are we using what we're doing in school to influence the, the school community of parents and you know, other local organizations that engage with the school? What are we doing around food? In a way, that's a campus thing, but it stretches into community as well. You know, the choices that are made about the food we eat and how it's sourced, obviously, is really significant in terms of environment. And that, that then spreads into the behaviours in homes. So that's part of a community campus interrelationship. And then finally, captaincy, schools, school leaders asserting their leadership, but it's also pupils asserting their leadership and asserting their leadership over the people that they influence. Where do you see specific examples of promise in the curriculum space that you would love to see scaled? The Green School is really interesting in Bali. And I've also been talking to someone who was there at the beginning of helping develop their curriculum. They've gone for a much more holistic approach. And you know, Alan's an absolute purist. And he kind of says, you can't hope to bolt this onto the curriculum. You've got to design the curricula from scratch. And you know, it becomes a much more project-based learning approach. Putting learning on its feet and you are getting kids out there doing stuff and acquiring the knowledge as they are engaged in projects. I think that's great and inspirational, but much harder to teach. And so the teacher training challenge would be massive and the change program would be just humongous in order to, to pull that off. So I think it's important to have those inspirations. 
but what the, what even are doing in terms of the training that they're doing working with teachers and and leaders here i think is is pretty powerful in being able to sort of open minds to the opportunities that exist across the whole curriculum and i think if we can get there with that so this isn't about changing the programs of study for the subjects it's about saying okay when you are teaching maths when you're teaching physics when you're teaching english when you're teaching history there are moments in your program of study when you can get into a sustainability message uh, when you can teach aspects of sustainability you can potentially team teach and you can potentially do something more active um, that will emotionally engage learners and of course we we know that learning is most successful when when you're emotionally engaged with it anyway and as we've discussed young people are really moved by this they really care about it so you're going to get more engaged learners in whatever subject you're teaching if you can bring this into what you're doing how do we get kids to fall in love with nature when they're in a concrete jungle effectively in part you get them out into green spaces and i'm here in lewisham we've got quite a lot of green spaces around and parks and rivers um and the rise of the forest school movement uh, has been in urban areas as much as in rural ones it's slightly patchy but i think you can get out into parks and you can do stuff you can also bring nature into school i mean i remember you know in my south east london privileged private school but yeah you know, we had wormeries yeah you know, we had ant farms we were doing things where we were bringing insect life at least into classrooms and being able to examine what these animals are doing and learning about soil something as basic as soil and how important that is in terms of regulating our environment and the health of soil that's something you can kind of do anywhere and you know again here in Lewisham there are robins in the garden there are foxes there are I saw a couple of jays this year there's a richness of biodiversity if you only knew it schools keep bees yeah schools are doing all kinds of things that are bringing nature into school as well as you know the inevitable but slightly challenging business of getting kids out on trips doing outward bounds doing stuff which gets them into nature and and in the end i don't think there's any substitute for that i think we need to ensure that a little bit of that happens for every child okay so talk briefly about captaincy so leadership what does that even mean as i said earlier i think it is about getting the school community to lead the wider community and see themselves as leaders in the end is about mindset i think you know if you've been empowered if you've seen how you can have an impact and how aggregated with the others in your class with the others in your school you've changed things if you start to create leadership around how people get to school yeah you know, i remember 30 years ago safe routes to schools and trying to get the school run to constrain itself somewhat in terms of the use of cars that's an ongoing battle to get kids to walk to school more or come more sustainably that's a, a, a good example where schools can show a bit of leadership you know the, the local school up the road in conjunction with the council they've now got these sort of school safe zones where a uh, dropping off and pick up time you're not just not allowed to drive cars down it's become illegal <laughs> um, good exa- you know, good example of top down <laughs> yeah yeah I, i love a bit of law as you can tell yeah. um, just just make it illegal uh, o- occupational hazard i would imagine yeah <laughs> that's an example where you're kind of starting to show people that it is perfectly possible to just change a bit of behavior and to do things better and everyone's better as a result because the air quality 
is better. It's a safer environment for your kids. And you actually end up having a more qualitative experience first thing in the morning at the end of the day with your children when you're taking them to school and picking them up, assuming you're not working. So yeah, there are problems for people around that in terms of lifestyle that they have to be able to fix and that we then therefore have to be able to help fix for them. And there you can lead with your parent community around finding parents who are willing to then help walk some other children's school as well as their own because the parents of those children can't manage it. Which could have some very positive reverberations for social cohesion and community. So before we run out of time, I want to revert back to two issues you brought up. Um, One is eco-anxiety. How serious is this problem? And you've touched on, you know, empowerment is kind of the way to get around that. But because I do actually hear this from a shocking number of kids, which is like, it's kind of game over. You guys messed up. Like we're doing all we can, but you guys have gotten us into the situation. And if we're still, I I often hear this phrase, if we're still here, and I'm thinking, I cannot believe that 13 year old kids are using this language. It's so sad. And do they, like, if they're internalizing that, that must be really very scary. Well, Jenny, my strong sense is that we we confront it through doing what I've talked about, through through, uh, embedding, learning, and doing something about climate change in schools. I'm doing it in a way that is measurable, because if you start to measure in one school in a way that's consistent with another school, then you can start to aggregate that impact up. And then once individuals see that their individual actions amount to something significant because they're done in concert with other people, um, then that becomes really powerful. And I think also, given that lots of young people are calling for this and campaigning for it, and we saw the Friday strike movement, etc., for them to actually see that they're being listened to will give them more hope that, yes, my generation that pissed it all up against the wall in terms of the, of the environment, we are now listening and we're wanting to put some of the things right if, if we possibly can. What about strikes? I just have to get this in. Do you think strikes are a good idea for kids? Because I, I I struggle with this one with my kids. I've taken them on a few climate strikes. I want them to believe that that's a tool that they have. I also really don't want them to miss a huge amount of school for it. Uh, torn. I'm equally torn. Demonstration is a really important part of democracy. And learning that is not a bad thing at all. And striking is an important tool in the armory of, of demonstration. And I applaud young people for wanting to do something and and demanding to be heard, which is in the end what that movement has done. And I think it's meant that Greta Thunberg, as an example, has a platform globally and and has been given one globally by adults for her to shout at them and be very disappointed in them. That's a start. But in many ways, one of the reasons why the head teacher unions have been responsive and positive about my bill is because the head teachers in this country want something positive to do rather than having to grapple with respecting why people want to strike but trying to prevent them from striking because they want them in school. So the best way of responding is to say, okay, don't strike because we're now going to do something about the thing that you want to strike about. I want to end on this idea of sustainable citizenship. Just tell me what a sustainable citizen can do. What's our goal? What's our North Star here? I would go back to the phrase that I, I put in the bill. A sustainable citizen knows how to care for themselves, cares for other people around them, and cares for the natural environment. God, I love that. The world would be a much better place if that was actually the case. I'd like to think. (laughs) All right. Rapid fire. What is your favorite book about learning? 
Finding Your Element by Ken Robinson, uh, which is here somewhere behind me. I also really loved Todd Rose's The End of Average. All right, your favorite book, not about learning. Suitable Boy, Vikram Seth. Excellent choice. And finally, what are you binge watching? Tehran, we've just been watching, which I've really enjoyed. Almost as good as Ted Lasso. Lord Jim Knight, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure as always. Captain Jenny, it was a joy. Thank you. I am perplexed by many things in this world, including how we help young people feel less eco-anxious and more eco-empowered. And yes, I did just make those words up. There is a ton of corporate greenwashing around climate change, which only makes millennials and Gen Z and Generation Alpha, a phrase I learned this morning, more angry about the state of the world. I agree with Jim that we have to listen to young people because they are brimming with ideas. We also have to provide space, time, transportation when necessary, and funds to be connected to the natural environment and educated in ways to save it. I really liked the way Jim thinks about the role of legislation to make sustainable citizenship more equitable, which, as he aptly points out, won't happen organically. I also like the four C's when thinking about how to approach sustainability, campus, curriculum, captaincy, and community. I appreciate how Jim borrows from other countries to bring in new ideas, and it felt good to try to hash out some of the conflicts I feel is apparent around climate strikes. As a writer, I can't help but admire the simple and powerful language Jim uses in his build to describe what we need to do and why. It's not a set of rules to argue about, but rather a very simple set of values around care for ourselves, each other, and the planet. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.